Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Tom Goodwin, author of Digital Darwinism, subtitled survival of the fittest in the age of business disruption. Tom and I talk quite a bit about his new book, Digital Darwinism, as well as content in the book from how the world has changed with digital technologies to what hasn't changed, frankly, and how consumers consume things that they do every single day to why management consultants probably aren't the best solve for businesses today looking to change how they do things the role of empathy and imagination in designing new methods to disrupt and evolve your business over time, as well as much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tom Goodwin. Well, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, first, I should say congrats on publishing Digital Darwinism. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's a good, it's a really good read. It's a really good read. I recommend <laughs> it to others. Yes. I wanted to ask you a question, though. Why write a book now and why this topic? Yeah, it's probably not the best or the most compelling answer you'll ever get, but I was actually quite reluctant to write a book. I'm not really a huge fan of the format of physical books. It's quite ironic when you talk about change in the world that 
you end up writing something that's kind of imprinted <laughs> on dead trees. So it was, it was quite strange, but um, various people kind of suggested that I should write a book and I kind of like finally succumbed to the pressure. And it's quite a different process. I kind of feel like most of my life I've been sprinting and then you're asked to run a marathon and you're kind of aware that your arms and hands move in the same way, but it's a very different feeling. So it was quite a journey that I went on writing it and the idea of putting something onto paper that you couldn't change later, the idea of starting a conversation where you couldn't actually listen to what people said in, in return. It was quite unusual and strange, but it was important for me to do it at this moment in time because my sense is that we feel like we've got to grips with new technology and we feel like somehow we know what we're doing. And there is this sense that somehow companies are going through a transformation process. And I'm just not entirely sure that that's actually the case. I'm not entirely sure the companies have really got to grips with what's possible yet. So one of the things you mentioned early on in the book was that you know, you need to remember what's not changing. And like you said, you've put, you know, ink on dead trees to write this book <laughs> about change. <laughs> yeah, it's a good demonstration. Yeah, yeah. No, what, could you explain what you mean by, you know, what's not changing? Or if you can give some examples, that would be great. I mean, I think the reality is that if we think about the morning or the afternoon that we've had already today, and we compare it with a similar time period, 10 years ago and 20 years ago, it is actually possible to write down pretty much everything that's the same and everything that's different. And by and large, everything will be the same. I understand why it is that people go out and they talk about how different things are. And I understand those tweets that get retweeted several thousand times about the fact that Facebook is only 10 years old or whatever. But the reality is that our very core, we are as human and as primitive and as kind of animal-like as we've ever been. And I think quite often we forget that. Like we forget that these new technologies become a way for us to become even more human and even more primitive. And we have this kind of ongoing narrative about how chaotic things are and how the pace of change is faster than ever. And I think sometimes that means that we focus more on the technologies than on our instincts. And we focus more on data than we do on ideas. I know somehow we make life more complicated than it needs to be. I feel like if you're a climate change scientist, you probably only really get published if you say that climate change is a smaller issue than everyone thinks and it doesn't exist. Or you probably get published if you say that climate change is the worst problem that we've ever thought before. You know, if, if you have this kind of nuanced viewpoint between the two, you probably don't get noticed. So I think generally speaking, most industries are full of people saying, you know, we have mobile phones now, we have, we're on the edge of 5G, we've got the internet of things, you know, your company is absolutely screwed and it changes everything. And I just don't think that's true. I think we have this wonderful new toolkit, which gives us new possibilities. But actually, many of the learnings that we've got from the past, many of the techniques and the strategies that we've employed before are largely still appropriate for today. Very true. Very true. One of the things that shook me to some degree as I was reading the book is just the foundational change that you talk about. And changing the business foundations. And, you know, you highlight the traditional go-to solution provider for that is management consultants. Yeah. But, you know, you also make a reference that you think the change is too fast for their typical solutions. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm aware of the sort of contradiction that comes over when I speak about this, where one minute I'm saying that not everything is changing, and the next minute I'm saying but companies need to go through a radical transformation which won't come to them through the mouths of, of management consultants. And I think what I'm really saying is every company needs to be honest about the situation they're in. They need to be honest about the changes that are happening to consumer expectations. They need to be honest about the changes that are happening to the competitive marketplace. 
And based on that, they may realize that, you know, their Munich-based family brewing company is not going to be destroyed by Airbnb or by Uber or by Facebook, and they can carry on making beautiful lagers in the same factories. And if you're in the funeral direction business or if you're an accountancy company, like it may not be the case that everything's different, but there are quite a lot of companies out there, whether they're retailers, whether they're automotive companies, whether they're CPG companies, they need to be mindful of the fact that things are changing pretty significantly. And they can't kind of dabble around the edges. They can't expect to get game-changing results by having a robot in one store or by having a smart changing room in one demo store. They probably really need to sort of rethink the business model they're in, rethink some of the assumptions that they've made so far. And that's probably not going to come to them from a management consultant because Generally speaking, management consultants tend to be quite backwards looking and they look at best practice from the 1970s and 80s. You know, management consultants at Blockbusters would have been telling them to sell more Coca-Cola and and to have more types of ice cream. So they they tend to be quite good at sort of innovating within a paradigm, but they're terrible at, at making the leaps across to new ones. Interesting. One of the things you then mentioned is around empathy and imagination and combining those two things to survive the kind of dramatic change that's going on. Tell us more about how you think about empathy and imagination, if you don't mind. I think it will be interesting to speak to a psychologist about the actual sort of physiology behind these things. But my sense is that it's probably rather hard to teach true empathy, and it's probably even harder to teach imagination. Somehow we've ended up in a business environment where it's very hard to make decisions without data. People feel very vulnerable if they come up with ideas that are quite wild. And I think it's limiting the amount of progress that companies can make. I think in particular, this kind of risk aversion culture, I think is quite dangerous in in large companies. So I'd really like us to appreciate that some people in the world of marketing and business may just be extremely empathetic, and they may make extremely good decisions. And they may just be kind of instinctively good at their jobs. And I mean, in theory, like we are all in this industry because we have succeeded for many years in a row and we must have good judgment. And I just wish somehow we could have more faith in people's ability to make decisions, perhaps with too little data, perhaps purely based on instinct, perhaps just by imagining themselves in different people's situations. Because I think we'll get to a better place if we do that. Well, it's this weird dynamic. We were just talking about management consultants and kind of the incrementality, if you will, of their solutions. And then the imagination and empathy kind of pushing the boundaries potentially, or in combination, pushing the boundaries of where you could take your company. Yes. We tend to favor quite boring solutions. So Right. And we don't often understand the, the questions particularly well. So, I mean, a good case would be the kind of new high-speed rail link they're talking about building in the UK between London and the north of England. And I don't think anyone really knows why they're supposed to be doing this. Are they doing it because they're trying to spread the wealth from the southeast? Are they doing it because they're, they're doing so to move jobs to the north? Are they hoping that companies relocate to the north? Because... And they're about to spend nearly 100 billion pounds on this thing that no one quite understands what problem it solves. And then based on a real understanding of what it's actually about, it may be that spending that money on fiber internet would be better or spending it on better schools would help boost the economy. And that's both the practical example, but also a sort of metaphor on the degree to which we tend to sort of favor quite boring and expensive and safe solutions that are tangible rather than realizing that it's small little moments of genius that aren't necessarily expensive that can create huge kind of returns on investment. Right. 
Right. Well, I mean, if we use that example, you you also take on, I don't know if this is an appropriate way to <laughs> describe, but take on Clayton Christensen's theory of disruption. So, you know, in this example of the high speed rail, instead of moving the people, move their ideas, right? Yeah. Faster. Do you feel that, I guess, two questions buried yeah. in this. One is, do you disagree with Clayton Christensen's theory of disruption or, or push back on it. And then, you know, you talk a lot about paradigm shifts. So I want to, yeah. I think it works into this question. I think his theory was true and academically robust for a moment in time, which is now past. So his theory was very much based in the world of hardware and around much more sort of tangible and physical innovation. So whether it's excavators or whether it's different ways to produce steel, it was kind of based on the sort of physicality of that. I mean, I don't like the idea of being aggressive or, or sort of rude about his work, but the reality is that it doesn't really explain most of the profound business successes of today. So like Facebook isn't a disruptive innovation relative to the newspaper business. It's a completely different thing altogether. You know, Tesla is not a cheaper car that has undermined other automotive manufacturers by employing cheaper technology. It's a much better way to get from A to B that operates in a radically different way. So whether you look at the iPhone relative to phones that came out before, whether you look at Airbnb, which is not really cheaper than hotels, I mean, his theory was very much based on the idea that somehow there is this leap to a different way of doing things, which employs a different sort of process and different machinery and different materials in such a way that it's so much cheaper than what happened before that people leap to the cheaper solution. And quite simply, most of the things that we use today are not cheaper, they're just better. So my kind of theory is based on this idea of a kind of design funnel. And the idea is that you have criteria, which is an industry you use to refine what you've done before. Um, so cars slowly become lighter and cheaper and they become more, they could become fabricated with lower tolerances. And then you kind of get to a point where there's like an ultimate solution, which probably means there's less variety in the marketplace. So most cars today look surprisingly similar to each other. And then all of a sudden, some company comes that's never worked in that kind of paradigm before, and they don't have the same assumptions about the industry. They don't have the same assumptions about what consumers want. They don't make the same assumptions about how something is made. And then they just approach the problem in a completely different way. So you can look at the Dyson vacuum cleaner as being a good example of this, where until the Dyson vacuum cleaner came out, most vacuums were about 100 to $200. They all remarkably similar. And then along comes this item that's actually about four times the price, has massive profit margin, and it's made by a company that's making a vacuum cleaner for the first ever time. So my kind of theory is, is very much about um, new entrants seeing things in a different way and challenging all of those assumptions. So whether it's Tesla's first car, whether it's Facebook's first media property, whether it's Amazon's first store, we tend to find that the first people to approach something in a new way are the ones that really, really unlock significant value in a new system. So banks probably need to be less worried about other big banks and more worried about insurgent startups, whether you're a hotel chain that should have been scared of Airbnb. You just need to kind of look about your competitors in a different way, I think. Where would you say a company should start? Let's say I'm, I'm feeling nervous, right, about the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, you have this nice model inside the book about, you know, the layers of a company starting from yeah. the outer rings and working your way in. But, I, you know, I just would love for, how would you tell somebody to, 
start. It's definitely quite difficult to give highly generic advice like this because so many companies are in very different situations. And it's easy to say things and assume that that's the case for all companies. And then you later find out that it's very difficult to sort of generalize. I think there are a lot of companies that realize now that the attributes that made them successful So that might be expertise, that might mean a brand that has value, that might mean distribution, that might mean staff or factories that they own. Increasingly, those attributes are not just not as beneficial as they used to be, but they're almost actively disadvantageous. So if you're an airline and you own lots of old planes, then actually it would be better if you didn't own them altogether and that you could you know, wet lease a brand new fleet of 787s or something. If you're a hotel chain and you look at the reputation that you have, it may be that you look at that and think, do you know what, it'd almost be better to to have nothing. So there's, there's an interesting sort of process, which is how do you go about retooling yourself for the day? And that involves a certain degree of destruction, a certain degree of recreation. And I think it's interesting for companies to look at the situation they're in, to understand what the competitive threats are, to understand what technology will mean for their business in the future, and then to establish a broad strategy of what to do with, how to deal with that. And that might involve actually recreating your entire company from scratch and almost becoming the thing that kind of eats the old entity rather than having a competitor to do that for you. Interesting. So Tom, one of the things that you talk about is that as we think about change or, or where we need to take our business is, you know, we're looking at our data, so the data may be lacking. Can you expound on that? Like what, as I'm thinking about this process and digging deeper into my myself around my business, <laughs> yeah, the only thing I have is the data I have, right? Yeah. So tell me more about that. I think we need to be aware that most people's companies, the kind of aggregate of the viewpoint of that company is virtually always in the past. So if you work in the accounts department, you'll be looking at things that have happened for the last sort of five to 10 years. If you work in marketing, you'll probably be looking at the campaigns that you ran two or three years ago. You'll be looking at other work that is celebrated within our industry that might have won can awards this year that will probably have been in market a year ago that will have been developed two years ago based on briefs three years ago so most of our industry is kind of firmly rooted in the past and all of the data that we have by definition is historical and we just need to be mindful that the you know history is incredibly important to us and context is vital but Anything that's particularly exciting and everything that has the ability to really, really change the results that we get. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
probably hasn't really been done before. So if you were in the body lotion business 10 years ago, you know, there was no trend line that suggested that self-tanning lotion or gradual tanning body lotion would be a thing. And then when it was created, I think by Johnson & Johnson, all of a sudden it made incredible amounts of money in a very short period of time. And that's the case everywhere. So whether you look at the rise of Le Croix, flavored water, whether you look at Red Bull, whether you look at innocent smoothies in the UK, whether you look at areas like fashion. This idea of getting very high resolution data into the past is essential, but we also need to be aware of our ability to kind of create the future because it's quite easy to innovate within a paradigm and to get slightly greater results and to become slightly more efficient and to improve the kind of ROI slightly. But the real success comes from companies that that kind of challenge those rules and do something that's radically different. Well, let's talk a little bit about what change looks like. And I know this varies based on the type of organization. Assuming a startup, you can kind of create things from scratch. Yeah. But in a larger company, you know, there's pushes towards agile development cycles. And I I know that's probably more incremental in nature, but give us some sense of what does change look like? Well, I think change actually looks a lot more messy and scrappy and uncomfortable than most companies are prepared to accept. So a kind of routine problem I find both in my role and when I'm doing other things is that companies are very good at managing risk and they're very good at perfecting within a current process and they're kind of deeply uncomfortable with uncertainty. So it's quite a common request that I get, which is to do something that's never been done before in a particular industry. And then when you come up with a few ideas which genuinely haven't been done before, it's not long before you're then asked to come up with like a return on investment for it. And generally speaking, everything that's worth doing because it hasn't been done before is so kind of uncertain and so untested that by definition, there won't be a robust process to make a return on investment. And this makes people deeply uncomfortable. And then the other thing you get, if if you can't show an ROI or if you accept that the model that you're using is completely flawed, you're then sort of asked to come up with other companies that might have done it before, in which case you suddenly realize the sort of inherent tension in the brief, which is to do something that's never been done before that you can sell in because other people have done it before. So it becomes quite sort of <laughs> circular and strange. Right. But I think there's a really fascinating tension here, I think, between companies that are big and have all these resources And the degree to which they've succeeded in the past by being big and by not making mistakes and by kind of perfection. I think those companies are just sort of structurally incapable of going through the types of change they really need to do. And they tend to do quite a lot of merchandising of innovation. So it's quite normal to have a retailer that has one robot in a store in San Jose or to have a retailer that will have a smart changing room or that will have free Wi-Fi where you can get a voucher. It's quite normal for there to be a hotel chain or a couple of the locations you can use an Apple Watch to check in. But generally speaking, everything's kind of the garnish and it's around the edge and it's small projects and it's kind of celebrated in the press. And actually what most company needs are is that someone comes in and kind of redoes most of their boring processes that are behind the scenes. So it's kind of banks that have got COBOL code sort of written into the back end of of how they operate that know that it's probably a 10-year program to redo the foundations of that business. But unless those kind of foundations are redone, then the kind of growth of that business for the future will be massively limited. Mm. Well, you know, we're speaking of different industries now, retail, banking, et cetera. Are there industries op- or companies where you see big opportunities for digital Darwinism? 
insurance for me, as I was reading the book, seemed like one that's ripe for this change. But yeah, I think I mean it depends on your viewpoint. So if you're an incumbent business, there are certain places where I think you're more vulnerable than others. I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but the internet is kind of this wave of change that kind of spreads out. And I think that kind of wave is going to hit various different industries next. I think retail is obviously one that's suffering at the moment due to the rise of e-commerce and the kind of difficulty in the unit economics of making e-commerce work unless you've constructed yourself for that paradigm. So retail is an obvious one. Things like insurance will be interesting to see. I think banking is a fascinating one. Like I think if you were to recreate the concept of banking today, you know, your starting point would not be a kind of marble building on every main street. It would be some kind of fantastic payment processing software, which is much, much more efficient than what exists already. I think TV is fascinating. I'm aware that most legacy TV companies seem terrified by change and they're kind of deliberately not changing together. So their business models are not disrupted. I can't remember if I said it before, but the car market, I think, is going to undergo huge change quite soon as well. Interesting. Interesting. Well, you know, as we think about changes, it's fundamental to the not only the businesses, I guess, but the societies and the people of, of societies that we're trying yeah. to serve as businesses. Are there any trends or, or things that concern you about the future? <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of weird. I mean, I'm sort of naturally predisposed to be quite happy and I'm aware of my own sort of privilege and at the same time, generally, I get quite worried about a number of ongoing developments in the sort of wealth inequality. I think it's quite hard to sort of see progressing in a particularly positive way. You look at how artificial intelligence may change the nature of some roles. You look at the degree to which I know many, many companies will probably operate at lower profit margins. So the sort of fundamentals, I think, of the developed world, I think are quite scary for people that and not necessarily in the sort of richer half of the population. And I think, you know, without getting too political, when you look at things like the rise of Trump or Brexit, that's probably a country's way of saying, look, this isn't okay for everyone. So there's this weird sort of tension where, I mean, if you look at things very rationally and you look at birth rates and death rates and you look at education levels and literacy and most of the really important human statistics are actually extremely positive and they're extremely positive for the whole world. And there's a sense that if you're hands rosling or something, you must be quite annoyed at the degree to which people are being negative. But then you also look at the internet and the way that that's created sort of extremism and the way that that seems to celebrate and allow fake news to propagate. And we seem to be sort of more ignorant as than you would expect us to be given that we now have the internet to learn anything. So it'll certainly be interesting to see how the world changes. And it'll be interesting to see how the geographies of countries change and what things like artificial intelligence will mean for jobs. Mm. Interesting. As a marketer, the divides, if you will, you know, whether it's income, whether it's political yeah. divides, it seems to be becoming harder to, to bridge those, if you know what I mean, to create a product or service. Somehow it's... I don't think it's sort of technologically that difficult. I think it's more that I know somehow the internet has shone a light into human nature mm. and into the way that we like surrounding ourselves with people that are like us. And that if we do surround ourselves with people like us, then we feel somehow less responsibility to other people. And you can see various developments. So whether it's things like the gig economy or whether it's self-flying cars, you can kind of imagine uh, the country feeling quite different in 10 years' time where the rich people are probably able to live more comfortable lives than ever and probably see other less fortunate people less than, than ever. Mm. 
Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's switch gears a little bit. I think mean, that's a good note. Let's switch gears. So I love getting to know the person behind either the book or the company that I'm talking to. And so one of the questions I love asking is more of a, a deeper personal reflection question is, you know, in essence, is there an experience in your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, I'm sure most people answer in a more dramatic way where there is a particular moment. So this is quite a boring answer relative to that. I mean, there are two things. Is one, the way I was brought up by my parents, they were very, they were quite subversive people who are extremely sort of smart, not massively ambitious in terms of their career and quite sort of liberal people. So the degree to which I have this quite sort of cheeky, quite sort of challenging personality, I think comes massively from the kind of values that they sort of gave me. The other thing is the kind of process of going to university and, and studying quite an unusual degree was quite significant for me. So I studied architecture, but also structured engineering at the same time. And it meant that my day would cover everything from the kind of Euler-Bernoulli equation in structural engineering, which was very sort of logical or sort of discrete mathematics or imaginary numbers. And then the other half of my day might include life drawing or sort of writing poetry or something. And I think it's allowed me to try and see both sides of the world today where there is this necessity to sort of understand technology. So it's given me this kind of holistic understanding of technology and humanity, which I think is really important at this moment in time, where you're kind of able to understand what code means and the logic of technology and the sort of brutal honesty of algorithms. And then you're also able to sort of understand the kind of whims of humanity and the degree to which creativity and empathy and other kind of softer skills really change the way that we experience things. And you're able to sort of give equal weight to both of those sides. Interesting. Well, another question, you know, kind of follow on, what fuels you? What drives you to do what you do? I think most of what I do is about creating a conversation. I think it's quite easy for people when they see my writing or the way that I present or my tweets to think that I'm kind of troll-like in the way that I kind of uh, put myself out there. And actually, I'm extremely frustrated at how technology is being misunderstood. I'm sort of extremely frustrated with companies' inability to work around what it can make possible. I'm quite frustrated with how most companies' body language is basically trying to ignore the internet and not make any changes. And I just think that actually technology is this incredible toolkit and that it's never been easier to sort of try new things and to create new ideas. So a lot of it is kind of fueled by that kind of passion to try and create a conversation to try and bring about change. In, in particular, when I look at the advertising industry as well. So I would, like part of my role is to try and create new advertising experiences and to try and help our companies navigate change and try to get them to be more excited and to do more stuff. And it's actually very difficult to do that. Like it, It's surprising how resistant to interesting conversations people can be. So increasingly, I think my role will probably become more about creating these things myself. So I'm kind of hoping over the next few years to sort of do side projects and to sort of create new products and to kind of put what I preach into practice myself, ideally for our clients or ideally for new clients, but perhaps I might just have to do it myself. Mm. That's interesting. Well, stepping back a little bit, and this may be difficult since you, you do have kind of a professional services bent to what you do, <laughs> but are there brands or companies or causes you follow or you think other people should take notice of? It's interesting. I mean, there are obviously examples which everyone is aware of that are not new news, but I think the work of Elon Musk is extremely interesting. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's worth everyone 
paying a lot of attention to sort of medium-sized startups that perhaps are like the oldest new companies. So look at people like eBay and more sort of WeWork. Look at people like Zipcar. And I look at how these companies that did have this accelerated growth, look at how they're looking to sort of change to maintain relevancy. Look at people like sort of Uber sort of Airbnb, because I think that next stage of growth I think is fascinating. I also think the rise of, I mean, they're called digitally, what they call digital vertical, digitally innovative vertical native brands. So whether it's people like Parachute or Brooklyn and all, all birds, because I think the way that they do things differently and the way that they kind of approach problems from a different angle, I think there's something extremely interesting about that. So if you compare L'Oreal and Estee Lauder with ELF or with Benefit, you know, it's just fascinating to see how companies can, can sort of challenge things in a different way. Interesting. Well, last question for you. What do you see the future of marketing? Where do you see it going? It's a bit boring, but I don't actually <laughs> see it as being radically different to how it's been in the past. The sort of trendy answer is to say that voice commerce will change everything or that we're all going to wear AR glasses and all ads are going to be in AR format. You know, a couple of things. I don't really see any new technology happening that soon, which will ultimately take over our mobile phones. I don't think our media consumption will change that much from how it is today. I think we'll see, we need to get to grips with what we've already got. Like if I go to the New York Times on my phone right now, the ads I get served will be absolutely abysmal ads for products that I know I won't have any interest in. If I go to the desktop version of the Wall Street Journal, if I go to Fox News right now, there's a lot of ads which seem to have been based on the false assumption that everything needs to be micro-targeted, that retargeting is the way forward. And a lot of it's based on really crappy attribution, which is nonsense. And it's based on companies that have kind of persuaded marketing directors that we can evaluate things in spreadsheets, even though we can't. So I'd love to see us get much better at the tools that we already have. So whether it's really rich, kind of immersive ads that just appear for two seconds and then vanish, whether it's the rise of kind of brand building through digital media, I think that stuff is probably going to be where the next level of growth comes from. I also think we can apply the kind of empathy and creativity that marketers have to more of a holistic experience. And by that, I mean, you know, I don't want my hotel chain to take out a TV ad to say that they care about my needs. I want them to create products and services which show me that they do. So whether it's automated check-in when you walk in, whether it's getting text messages to tell you that your room's ready when you've just come off a red eye, whether it's that Netflix kind of loads up automatically as you get in bed and it shows you programs that it thinks you might want to watch. You know, just a much more, the application of creativity and problem solving and technology to just make experiences better, I think is a whole kind of strand that the future of marketing could become. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Tom. My pleasure. It's been great. Thank you, Alan. Marketing Today is brought to you by Atomic. Atomic focuses on unleashing the growth potential for clients we serve. Atomic is a strategic consultancy specializing in business, marketing, brand, and innovation. Our singular goal is to help you accelerate your efforts with the right mix of expertise, analysis, and creativity. Check us out at atomic.com. A-T-O-M-C-K.com. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley. 
Social media support by Megan Woods. Art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to marketing today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.